0: But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured... The foundations of the earth searched out below then i will cast off all the offspring of israel for all that they have done declares the lord our father we're so thankful that when you make an unconditional promise you don't break them and while the lord jesus came to his own and for the most part his own received him not thank you for the truth that whoever will receive him can become a recipient of this new covenant that we won't simply know of your existence but you will send your spirit in us because of forgiven sin that we might know you in a personal way and thank you that you are going to accomplish this amongst the people of israel we know that they have numerous enemies who want to drive them into the sea But your word here affirms that those enemies might as well try to shoot the stars and the moon and the sun out of the skies, that they'll have more success at that than for you to stop loving them and being committed to them. Thank you that the stage is being set for the return of your Son from heaven, that is a sovereign, providential God that you will bring Israel to faith and bring the fulfillment of the Great Commission to the whole world. In the interim, you've called us to be faithful as Gentiles. We know your church is largely a Gentile church today. So help us as we open the Word of God to have open hearts and minds. Help me, Father, fill me, anoint me, use me, for all who will hear this message that we would be changed. We ask it, Holy Spirit, through your work and in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bible and turn to the book of 2 Timothy. All the books that begin with the letter T are in the New Testament, and they're all together. They go from long to short. Thessalonians, that word is longer than the word Timothy, and the word Timothy is longer than the word Titus, so you have First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, and then Titus. We're in Second Timothy chapter 3. Now these are challenging days in which we live, and we learn here in the third chapter that they're called the last days, they're called difficult times. They're called dangerous days. With all my heart, I really truly believe that God is setting the stage for the return of His Son from heaven. The Bible teaches us that for the lost people of this world, Jesus' return will be like a thief in the night. They'll be caught by surprise, but not for God's people. For the Scripture says in 1 Thessalonians 5, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you like a thief. Now, I suppose in one respect, it will be a surprise for all in that no one knows the exact time, the day, or the hour. But for the unbeliever, it will be a shock. For the Christian, we shouldn't be shocked. We should be ready because this verse of Scripture says that we can understand something about the times and the seasons because we're not in darkness. That as sons of light, we can be perceptive as to what is taking place, and we should be ready for the return of the Lord Jesus. Now the Bible is clear that no one knows the exact day or the hour. And anyone who says I know when He is coming, and there have been many date setters in the history of the church, you know right off they're a false teacher, that they have departed from holy Scripture. Now I've preached the Bible for a long time, and I've been a student of Scripture for a long time. And from what I understand from Scripture, God is clearly setting the stage. We are on a collision course for disaster for those who are left behind, but for great redemption for those who are taken up. And the purpose of the gospel is not to try to save this world from a wreckage. It's going to be wrecked. In fact, the whole planet someday will be burned. It's become almost a religion, global warming. People seem to worship the creation more than they do the creator. God hasn't called us to save the planet. He's called us to save the people who live on the planet. He'll be over the events that we live in. The gospel is to warn men and women and boys and girls of how they can find forgiveness in a guaranteed place in heaven. With that said, let me just say this morning that we're in a series, and if you're here for the first time we had some months back finished the epistle of James. Usually I preach through an entire book of the Bible, line by line, verse by verse. But sometimes between books, I'll do some special series. And we have been doing a series on sharing Christ, basically on evangelism. If you remember, we started on sharing Christ courageously, and we looked at Peter and the apostles who came under great persecution But in spite of the persecution, because of deep-held convictions, they were willing to suffer, yes, even to die for the cause of sharing Christ. Then we move from there to, and by the way, this is an important lesson for us to learn in our day. I spent a whole message on it because as we approach the end of the age, persecution will grow. It will become more and more difficult. To name the name of christ and there'll be increased persecution then we went to sharing christ consistently and we looked at the life of philip he was a deacon in the church he was later dubbed philip the evangelist one of the roles of an evangelist is they become a model of what god's people as a whole should be doing not only did he share with uh, mass crowds up in samaria He also shared with single individuals, and we studied that encounter he had with the Ethiopian eunuch. Then we went to sharing Christ in the Spirit. Look, if you're not Spirit-filled, you're not going to have much success. If God brings someone into the kingdom, it won't be because of you. It will be in spite of you. And One of the reasons some Christians see so few people brought into the kingdom through their testimony is because they're really not Spirit-filled people. And then if you were here last time, we spoke about sharing Christ with others, and we looked at John 3 and Christ's encounter with Nicodemus, and he really taught us how to make the gospel clear. Today, the final message in this series, you can see it's entitled, Sharing Christ in the Last Days. So let's begin by reading our passage. I hope you have found it. It sounds like it. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning now in verse 1, but realize this. "...that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these." For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janice and Johnies and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith." but they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. Now remember, Paul is not under house arrest. He's in a dark, dank, dirty Roman prison. He's about to be officially condemned, and if the tradition is right, and we have much sources on it, he is going to be beheaded. So he's living under the shadow of execution, he's writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. For 30 years, Paul had in season and out of season preached the gospel. And he wants Timothy to continue to battle for the truth. He wants the gospel to go forward after he's dead and gone. And so the question that dominated Paul's mind is, Who would do it? How would it unfold? Listen, from a divine point of view, he understood completely that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. But he also knew from a human point of view that God uses men and women, and yes, even boys and girls, to bring people into the kingdom. So he writes this letter. It's his last letter that he will ever write. It's his last will and testament, encouraging him to preach, to teach, and to defend the gospel. Uh, Here's the book. I taught it once 20 years ago, and here's the outline I came up with. It divides into four simple parts. In chapter one, he's commanded to guard the gospel. In chapter two, he is called to suffer for the gospel. In chapter three, he's called to continue in the gospel no matter how dark the days may get. And then in chapter four, none of that does any good if you don't preach the gospel. The gospel must be preached. You think of it, well, from a pulpit like this, that's a small part of it. Most of it takes place during the week. After the church is gathered and we scatter to our various locales, we have opportunities. So knowing that the opposition is strong, knowing that the days are evil, he wants Timothy to be able to minister effectively in the last days. And so first, he's going to address something about the atmosphere of the last days, and so that's where we begin this morning, the atmosphere of the last days. Roman number one, if you're taking notes, if you're online, there is a place to print out an outline. Notice how verse one opens, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, there are two critical truths that I want us to learn from the very first verse, Number one, we are living in the last days. We are living in the last days. Now, with that said, I think it's helpful to define some important biblical words, especially, especially this phrase, the last days. See, most people think of the term last days as that final frontier just before Jesus comes. And that, as we will see this morning, is certainly part of it, but it's much broader than that. The New Testament doesn't allow us to restrict that term just to the final days before Jesus comes from heaven. In fact, the Bible is divided really into two halves. There's the Old Testament, and there's the New Testament. There's the New Covenant, there's the Old Covenant, there's the Old Deal, there's the New Deal. And so under the New Deal, we're living in a new age. It arrived with the first coming of Christ, and Peter believed that. If you remember in the day of Pentecost, he stood up and preached, and he said in Acts 2, quoting the prophet Joel, "'But this,' what they had just witnessed, the coming of the Holy Spirit, what we read in the pastoral prayer." that because sin would be forgiven, we would have under the new deal, under the new Diatheke, a new relationship with God that no Old Testament saint could dream of, where the Spirit of God would be implanted in our hearts. What they had just witnessed is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit upon mankind. So, from Peter's perspective… He was living in the last days with the coming and the indwelling of the Spirit of God. Likewise, the writer of the Hebrews identifies the last days with the coming of the Lord Jesus. Listen to the opening epistle, opening a chapter. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us through his Son. So, the New Testament teaches with the birth of the church... We have entered into a new realm that's called the last days. And we know that not simply from the usage of the term outside of 2 Timothy 3, but it's clear when you read this text of Scripture that we're studying this morning that Paul doesn't restrict it simply to the very end of time. Uh, He is going to say in verse 5, as he gives a description of the last days, and the people who will be ruling the last days avoid such men as these. So there's an assumption that there would be people alive in Timothy's day that he was to avoid because these were men who were leading in the last days. So um, it's an important term because sometimes we use the term very loosely. People say, well, we're in the last days. Well, you're right, we are. But the bigger question, are we living in the last of the last days? And we are going to think our way through that this morning. Now, understand, for the rapture of the church, prophetically, nothing ever has had to happen for Jesus to come back and to catch up his church. The word rapture comes from the Greek word harpazo. That means to be caught up. We shall all be caught up. And in the Latin translation of the Bible, it's raptore. We get our English word rapture from it. Every Christian believes in the rapture. When you meet a Christian who says, well, I don't believe in the rapture, he just doesn't know what he's talking about. You mean to tell me you don't believe the church is going to be caught up someday into a new resurrected body? Well, yeah, I believe that. Well, that's the rapture. The question is when does the rapture happen? And as you read the New Testament, it is clear that the return of Christ for his church is imminent, could happen at any moment. But the second coming is part of a predicted program. There's all kinds of prophecy that must be fulfilled for the second coming to happen. For instance, we need a one world ruler, we need a one world government. We need a one-world market where no one can buy or sell anything unless they take uh, the mark of the Antichrist's name and the number that is equivalent to his name, 666. And all of that will ultimately take place during the time of the Great Tribulation period. Jesus referred to it in Revelation 3 as the hour of testing that will come upon the whole world. There's never been an hour of testing that has come on the whole world but it's going to come after the church is removed. But what is so interesting is that when you see God laying the foundation for the second coming, certainly he could have caught up the church at 100 AD, but then the Jews who at that point were scattered throughout the planet, he would have had to have brought them back to fulfill all kinds of prophecy, and and he would have had to have done a lot, but he could have. But the fact that we are seeing prophecy in our day fulfilled for the second coming We know the rapture is that much closer. And both Moses and the Lord Jesus predicted that there would come a time in Israel's history where they would be scattered throughout the world. But then at the end of time, before the second coming, they would be regathered onto their land. Listen to what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 27. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. Jesus taught the same thing. He refined the time. He identified when what Moses wrote was actually going to happen. And so as you read the Olivet Discourse, in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, he is predicting the destruction of the temple. They're sitting on the Mount of Olives, Peter, James, John, Andrews, and they said, look at that magnificent temple, Lord. He said, a day is coming not one stone will stand upon another. And they, he adds, will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, speaking about the Jews. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And that's exactly what began to happen in 70 AD. The majority have happened in 70 AD, and by 132, really the bar Kokhba. Uh, rebellion, it was all over. They were scattered to the ends of the earth. Listen to Deuteronomy 28. Moses again gives the same warning. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. He's not talking about their being scattered to Assyria or later to Babylon. He's talking about the Jews being scattered from one end of the earth to the other. Moses also wrote 1,400 years before Christ in Deuteronomy 30. If you're outcasts or at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. So he predicts you're going to be scattered to the ends of the world, but then the Lord God is going to bring you back. Eight centuries later, Ezekiel predicts their, their gathering. He said, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. And Ezekiel 38... He tells us that this regathering will happen at the end of time. Listen, after many days, you will be summoned in the latter years, you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations. Now, who would have ever believed that Israel would become a nation? See, the centuries went by and people began to reason, well, maybe we've misunderstood the Scriptures. Maybe God is done with Israel. It's called replacement theology today. It's largely taught and reformed in covenant circles, covenant theology circles. The fancy term is supersessionism. But they say, well, the church is the new Israel. We have replaced Israel because of their unbelief in Jesus. The centuries went by and a thousand years went by and they thought clearly God's done with the Jews. Jews. In 1900, there's always been a remnant of Jews in Israel, even after 70 A.D., but just in the thousands. There was approximately, in 1900, it was the height of their remnancy. It was estimated there was about 20,000 Jews at that time living in Israel. On the day they became a nation, there were 600,000 Jews in Israel. And, of course, they declared their independence, And after they declared their independence, a hundred million Arabs said, we don't like that you are independent, and we're going to destroy you. (laughs) But they couldn't be destroyed. God protected them supernaturally. And again, He would gather them from the four corners of the earth. And so today we have just under seven million Jews. There's only approximately 12 and a half million Jews on the whole planet, and the final regathering happens at the second coming. For those who never made it back into the land, God will send out His angels and bring the rest back. But understand for the Olivet Discourse and the final prophetic schedule to unfold, you know, you who are in Judea, flee to the wilderness. Uh, someone's going to go, to go into the temple and, and commit the abomination of desolation. For all those things to happen... The Jews had to be back in the land. And so people just ended up spiritualizing the book of Revelation. We studied it. I did 72 hours of preaching on the Revelation. If you're listening online, you can get the Search the Scriptures app. They're called preterists. They view, with the exception of the literal second coming, it's all history. The whole book of Revelation is history. You have to spiritualize the passages. You have to spiritualize what Jesus said. Look, all the prophecy for the first coming was literally fulfilled. You can expect the same for the second coming. So when you see, A, the Jews back in the land, which God said He'd do at the end of time, you say, how much time do we have? I don't know. Over 70 years, He brought nearly 7 million Jews back into Israel. Do we have another 10 years or 50 years? I don't know. No one knows the day or the hour. But we know that we are in that season of what will happen at the end of time, in addition to that, Jesus likened his second coming, remember, no prophecy needed for the rapture, to the coming of the days of Noah, which were days of moral permissiveness, and he likened it to the coming of the days of Lot, which were days of moral perversion. So when you take the moral climate, added with the fact that Israel is back in the land, then you shouldn't be ignorant as concerning the times and the seasons that this day will overtake you like a thief. And so sin is growing, it's intensifying, and Jesus said it would. He said, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. And Paul will make the same statement here in verse 13 of this chapter. He tells us that sin and evil is going to intensify, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So before you can have the birth pangs, people say all the time, well, we're experiencing the birth pangs. These aren't the birth pangs. The birth pangs happen after the water breaks. The water will break when the church is removed. And when you study Matthew 24, the birth pangs in verses 3 through 14 perfectly parallel the sealed judgments. And then there's an event called the abomination of desolation, happens right in the middle of this seven-year period, and what follows in the rest of that chapter perfectly parallels the uh, trumpet and bold judgments that will follow. So nothing has to happen again for the second coming, but God is setting the stage. And so I think when you put it all together, you can confidently say, we are now in the last of the last days. So in the truest sense, we are living in the last days, but I think we are now living in the last of the last days. Secondly, we are living in difficult times. We're living in difficult times. Uh, Notice again how verse 1 opens, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. The King James says, perilous times shall come. The NIV 84 says, terrible times in the last days. So ever since the birthday of the church, ever since the coming of Pentecost, the church has faced difficult, perilous, terrible times, and church history certainly confirms that. The Greek adjective that is translated here as difficult is found in one other place in the New Testament. It's used to describe the Gerasene demoniacs. Two of them, in Matthew in describing them, says they were so exceedingly violent that no one could pass by the road. The same word is used outside of the New Testament to describe a dangerous and ferocious animal. He's just basically telling us that as we move and progress, things will go from bad to worse, and that's what the Lord said as well, that things will get worse, things will get evil. And there's a moral and social and political, even international darkness that seems to be growing by the month. And so while no one knows the exact time, no one knows the hour, it would be foolish for you to try to guess the exact time because no one knows the exact time, but you should be ready all the time because Jesus can come back at any time. We are to be ready because he could come back today. He could come back before this service is over. And as you pick up the newspaper, which I guess people don't do much anymore, they read the internet, you can see that there's a rapid moral decline that is happening. And so it's important to understand that while there's always been sin, it's not going to be uniform in its expression. That at the end of the age, it's going to grow deeper and broader and more intense. And so we live in a day where things are being accepted, things that we never would have accepted. And so we need to ask an important question here because it seems somewhat obvious. Why is it that Paul tells Timothy that he needs to realize... Or the Net Bible says, and rightly so, understand, that's the sense behind the word, that he needs to realize and understand that difficult times would come. I mean, after all, Paul's in prison. He'd been arrested, chained, and he's getting ready to be beheaded. Timothy understood that all in Asia had deserted Paul and he, and with the exception of the house of Onesiphorus. So, I mean, we're in difficult times. Why are you telling him to understand something that he already knows? I think two reasons. One, he wants to remind us that this is not a passing characteristic that the church will experience. And that's important because there's a whole group of theologians today, largely led out of the state of Iowa, who are telling us that things are going to get better. They're not going to get better. Things in the end, very clearly, plainly, will get worse. It's going to go from bad to worse. And so, one, he doesn't want us to think that this is just some passing characteristic. But secondly, he wants us to know that ultimately it will get harder and harder. And he didn't know if the Lord would return in the first century or whether the Lord would return in the 21st century. He just wanted them to be ready to be forewarned, is to be forearmed. And so that's the atmosphere of the last day. Secondly, if you're taking notes, we want to think for just a few minutes about the agents of the last day, the agents of the last day. In verse 2, the Apostle Paul immediately goes on to tell us, for men will be. Men are the agents of the trouble that will come upon the church. Now, if you were reading the Great New Testament, it says anthropoi. We get our word anthropos. It means men and women alike. It's a generic term. And so the new New American Standard that came out in 2020 says people. People will be. And that's the sense. He's not talking just about literal, physical men, but he's talking about people. And we refer to men that way. I know people get all bent out of shape, you know, oh, you can't say men, and you got to, you know. Look, men are men, people, okay? Now, the Bible uses a different word when it just wants to talk about literal men. but He's talking about people. Now, according to Romans 8 and verse 7, by nature, people are rebels. We are opposed to the law of God. And there are people who can spread heresy that He's going to remind us of in just a moment in false doctrine, But he wants us to understand, too, that people don't always operate independently of outside evil forces. If you look back on the page to 2 Timothy 2, the end of the paragraph right before the opening of this chapter, we read in verse 24, the Lord's bondservant, pastor you could say, must not be quarrelsome, but this applies to all of us. Because Paul said, follow me like I follow Christ, but the Lord's bondservant is to be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So clearly, there are some people who are captive by the devil. If you were here a couple months ago, we studied 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1. Let me dust off your memories. But the Spirit explicitly says, in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. Not from faith, but the faith. It's articular, meaning the body of truth we call the Bible. He's talking about apostasy, when people will abandon the essentials of Christianity And that will happen in the latter times. People will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. There are false teachers who come into the church, some who are on the outside who never end, and then some who come on the inside. And Paul warned of such people in Acts chapter 20 when he gathered the Ephesian elders. And they are driven by demons. Now understand, he doesn't say in the last days. He says, in the latter times, that's a different term used distinctly different in the Bible to refer to the very end of the age to the last of the last days. And you see it used that way in a number of places in Holy Scripture. Let me give you some examples. When Moses spoke to the nation and gathered them together, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, just before he died, he made this statement, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going, over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. Now God made an unconditional promise of ownership to the people of Israel concerning the land. But in terms of occupying the land, that was predicated on their faithfulness to the Lord. And God had given a deed to Abraham, it's recorded in scripture, 4,000 years ago, that the land of Israel is their land. But then he goes on, verse 27, the Lord will scatter you. If you are disobedient, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. And of course, this dispersion happened just like Jesus predicted beginning in 70 AD, and it was pretty much completed by the 130s. Just a handful of Jews left in Israel for the next 1900 years. But then God makes a promise in Deuteronomy 4 and verse 30. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, again, a time frame used throughout the Old Testament of that time frame, just before Messiah comes, not the first time, but the second time to rule and reign upon the earth. And all these things come upon you. In the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to His voice. Jeremiah pinpoints this time frame as happening during, especially during the time of the Great Tribulation, where they're not just come into the land. The Bible first predicts their physical regathering, You see it in that great dry bones prophecy. They are first regathered, they're assembled, and then God breathes life into them, they are regenerated. And the regeneration part that for the most part hasn't happened yet in Israel is going to happen according to Jeremiah during the time of Jacob's trouble. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. The time of Jacob's trouble is called in the New Testament the great tribulation. And so in describing it further, Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 30, 24, the fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and until he has accomplished the intent of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand this. You'll understand it how? Because you'll be saved. You'll have ears to understand it. You'll be regenerated. And the promise that he's about to make that we read in the pastoral prayer will be real in their lives. So just understand that the term latter days, latter years, latter times are parallel expressions. And so Ezekiel 38 that's describing the regathering of Israel at the end of time says, after many days you will be summoned in the latter years. You will come into the land that is restored from the sword whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations. So if you go to Israel today, it's a miracle. Jewish people from over 100 nations of the world are there. You meet them, you speak to them. Why'd you come? God compelled me to come. I'm here because God put it in my heart to come. And so we do not know the day or the hour. We do know the final stage is being set for the return of the Lord Jesus. And so it's in that context, he says, in the last days, difficult times will come for men will be. And here's the point. As we move closer to the return of Jesus, things will go from bad to worse. These expressions that we're going to read this morning are only going to grow and deepen and intensify. So let's first think about the moral conduct in the last days. There on your outline, the moral conduct in the last days. In the verses that follow, there are no fewer than 19 expressions that are used to describe the wicked people of the last days who turn away in a broader and more profound way from the truth of Scripture. And of course, if you know Bible prophecy, the greatest of all apostasies is going to take place through the Antichrist. It's articular, Paul describes it in 2 Thessalonians 2 as the apostasy. There's always been apostasy, but there's coming the apostasy of apostasy. But for men to embrace the Antichrist, they're going to have to make decisions before that leading up to it. And so when we think about what is described in our passage this morning, and the fact that God tells us it's going to grow and deepen, it shouldn't scare you. Prophecy was not given to make you afraid. It was not given to scare us. It was given to prepare us. God wants us to be prepared for the coming of His Son for heaven. And so He says in verse 2, notice, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, and then notice how he closes in verse 4 with lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So with these four expressions of love, he describes these various component parts. Now, the word for love, there are different words for love most of you know in the New Testament, and this is the word philos. First, he mentions lovers of self. Secondly, he states here lovers of money. Third, he mentions lovers of pleasure. And fourth, more than lovers of God. And so the repeated use of this word love suggests that what is fundamentally wrong is that these people at the end of time will have a love that is misdirected. Their love is in the wrong place. We say often as pastors, the heart of every problem is a problem of the human heart. And that's true. God commands us to love him supremely. Then he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. But if we love ourselves supremely, then we'll love neither God nor our neighbor. And so we have the selfie in our day. Hmm? (laughs) Now, I'm not trying to argue that every time you take a selfie, you're a lover of self, but people are consumed with themselves. They are lovers of self. And every one of these characteristics that Paul describes in many ways are a result of being a lover of self. And so men will be lovers of self, and then he adds lovers of money, like night follows day, one follows the other. And in this universe, there is God, there are people, and there are things. We should worship God, we should love people, and we should use things. But when we are lovers of self, we will ignore God, we will love things, and we will use people. And God's order will get all balled up. And I want to tell you on the authority of Scripture, you will not have a filled life. You'll have a miserable life. And you'll never be able to figure out precisely what is wrong. And so we live in a day where people want to just grab everything they can get. And the other perspective of giving has been lost. And what's happening here is not happening now in isolated spots. It's happening around the world. For men will be lovers of self. Notice the next word on the list. And the result of being lovers of self is that you will be boastful. Boastful. He's describing a braggart of sorts. When you love self and you love money, then you'll brag. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Look how great I am. And that leads to the next word, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant. Arrogance is everywhere in our culture. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. You look at the average politician, you look at the average Hollywood star, the average sports athletic guy, they are filled with self. And many think they're just so great that they're too good to be damned. And God isn't even in the picture. Notice the next word. It's revilers. Men will be revilers. The New King James in the Net Bible says blasphemers. And that's good because it's the Greek word blasphemos, the verb all. And it comes directly in English as blaspheme. What is blasphemy? In Scripture it goes in two ways. It goes vertically towards God and it goes horizontally to those who are made in the image of God. And that's primarily what's in view here. And so the NASB goes with revilers. Some of your translations say slanderers. And sadly, when people have lost all respect for God, they will be quick to revile and slander and blaspheme those who are made in the image of God. You know, I know our president has problems. But we're called to pray for our president. But what's really disturbing to me is when we have entire stadiums reviling and cursing our president. And what really saddened my heart was to think of the thousands of children who were present at those events. Look, that couldn't have happened 10 years ago. People wouldn't be so brazen to use such terminology, much less against the president of the United States of America. But that's where we're living. People are blaspheming God, and they are blaspheming those who are created in God's image. Let's keep reading here in, uh beginning further in verse uh, 2. He begins with five words that describe family relationships, and they're grouped together. You can't see it in the English Bible, but in each of the words that follow, there's an alpha on the front, so they're grouped together. Notice first, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers. Then he adds disobedient to parents. Now, the average family today are raising children who don't understand authority either inside or outside of the home. Of course, the number one cause of divorce in America is adultery. It used to be finances. Now, it's adultery. And so, children are being raised in homes. Where they're, they're often confused. They've got two daddies, two mommies, and promiscuity is everywhere. And where is it that these children are supposed to learn about respect for authority in the home? But when the home begins to s- disintegrate and fall apart, they lose it. Add to that, we have godless teaching that's going on right here in Beaufort County Public Schools. I tell people one of the most important people who we should vote for concerns the school board, I don't care where you send your kids to school, homeschool, private school, Christian school, public school, you should still vote. I hope many of you, if not all of you, voted on Tuesday. I went in at five minutes to eight. I usually am in there at seven when the polls answer. I was the first one to vote. <laughs> five minutes to eight. Eight. But we have in our public schools, these children are being taught transgenderism, critical race theory. I hope you understand that if you believe in critical race theory, you're not a racist. If you believe in, the, you know, people say, well, you believe in critical race theory, that means you're a racist. No, those who believe in critical race theory are the racists. I've got a magazine out there for you, hundreds are already taken. It deals with what really is critical race theory. Look, God knows I hate racism. God knows that we're from one blood, that we're all related. God knows that as people grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, racism begins to dissolve because you begin to see people as equals and equally sinful and that the ground is level at the cross. But our children are being taught. I know, and, you know, technically these things were against the law in South Carolina. That's what they said in Virginia, or at least the governor did but it was written in the school board, dictates. And you can teach it under all kinds of different labels. Children in sixth grade in our county are taught how to have safe sex. This is pathetic. They bring witches and socialists and drag, king, drag queens in to lecture the kids, but God forbid if you said anything about the Lord... So if children do not learn to respect and obey their parents in the home, where are they going to learn it? And what is happening in America is absolutely heartbreaking because we have a generation, I think, that are being prepared for the Antichrist who are disobedient to their parents, which makes them, look at the next two, ungrateful and unholy. Many times because that's the way dad and mom are. Our society, more and more, is being characterized by unthankfulness, just basic blessings. (laughs) My well broke this week, and it's nice when you have water, isn't it? Those guys came out to fix the well, and I prayed with them, and I'm just so thankful to have water. I spent a night in a home in Africa, two nights, sleeping on a dirt floor, holes in the roof. It rained. It came on me. They had to go hundreds of yards to get a bucket of water so I could bathe in the morning. We've got so much in this nation we take for granted, and yet we are so unthankful. And yes, I don't think it's pharisaical for you to bow your head in a restaurant to give thanks over the food, much less in your home. I tell my grandkids, hogs and dogs don't, but we should. We should be thankful for all that God has done for us. They're unthankful, they're ungrateful, they are unholy. And so we have more and more a generation that is being governed by their passions. Sensuality has become the order of the day. Whatever happened to wholesomeness? So we have kids in middle school who are dressing like hookers. Whatever happened on, to wholesome living? The next word in the list is rather chilling. It's unloving. It's a translation of a single Greek word that is descriptive of family love. The King James tries to capture astragos with the words without natural affection. That's pretty good, actually. Look, the family is under attack. And again, a nation is only as strong as its families. And in the place of natural love, we have more and more unnatural love. I mean, who would have ever thought that we could reach a day where parents would murder their children and children would attempt to murder their parents? Add to that many parents, most Americans, are being sold a bill of goods that your children and staying home and raising them and having mom there, it's an imposition. And so the politicians run on the platform, we'll provide good child care. And now they want to get mandatory K-3 education in America. Why do they want to do that? Because they want to remove your children from the home. The younger they can do it, the sooner they can indoctrinate them. And yet, without natural affection is a mark of the last days. And certainly, that's one expression of the LGBTQ plus movement. God describes what they do in Romans 1, we studied it some months back, as unnatural. Unnatural love. I think of Isaiah the prophet who wrote about Israel, and he reminded them that when this kind of behavior is unleashed in a culture that that culture is ready for judgment. The expression of their faces bears witness against them. And they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. And so out of the closet, right into our living rooms, even, yes, on Hallmark TV now, we have aberrant, perverted behavior being displayed. We studied it some time back from 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says laws are to be written against evil behavior, that good behavior would be affirmed. That's what the law is supposed to do, that's what the government is supposed to do. They're supposed to praise good and put down evil. So he tells us laws written in a society are not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Yet now we are writing laws to condone this behavior. Now please note that God does not, based on these verses, view homosexuality as some genetic predisposition. It's not. It is a perversion. And homosexuals like drunkards and adulterers and fornicators and anything else that is not consistent with God's standards need to find out how they can be forgiven. And I suppose one of the greatest expressions of raising your fist in the face of your Creator is to deny how He created you. And so we have transgenderism. A dad in my office was broken down in tears Because in, yes, the Bluffton Middle Schools, his daughters were being taught transgenderism. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The Bible is clear that God created you either male or he created you female. So here is Rachel Levine, affirmed with a 52 to 48 vote, And the Biden administration referred to her appointment as a landmark decision. But it's not a her, it's a he. His name is Richard. And he may say he's a female, but he is not. God created him male, period. And until 2013, we spoke of gender identity disorder that needed to be treated, at least from a secular realm. We see it as needing to be treated from a spiritual realm. Though as many of you, hundreds of you, called and emailed in Columbia, and they stayed it, but then they passed it. And yes, that is on the program for the coming years. Not only on the program for South Carolina, we better speak up. It's in the platform. Have you read the Democratic Platform 2020? Look, it has nothing to do with being a Democratic or a Republican or an Independent. It has to do not with right, left or right, but right and wrong. We're talking about moral issues here in the platform. They want to make it a federal law for you if someone comes and they say, look, I think I'm a girl, though I was born a boy, and you counsel them against that as a pastor. They want to make that illegal. They did it in Columbia. There's folks who want to do it statewide. Look, transgenderism is what we're talking about, a doctrine of Demons. There's no such thing as gender fluidity. Yes, my heart goes out for these kids. I want to help these kids. They're being trained in these schools, beginning in middle school, to question the way God created you. We need the wisdom that comes from above, not the wisdom that comes from below. The wisdom from below is demonic, And again, in the latter times, there'll be more and more more demonic teachings without natural affection, without family love. The fifth negatively prefixed word is the word here in the NASB, irreconcilable. The ESV, if you're using that, it says unappeasable. The King James says truce breakers. One man telling me he was born again... Said, well, I left my wife, I'm leaving my wife of 19 years for irreconcilable differences so that I can now live with my new girlfriend whom I really love. This word that is translated irreconcilable or truce breakers is a Greek word that is used of someone who doesn't keep their promises. Now, please understand if you've already broken your marriage vow, there is forgiveness. But let's make sure that if we have failed and we miss God's best, one man, one woman until death separates us, let's make sure that we don't rationalize what God calls wrong. You say, but I'm so happy now, I can't imagine a marriage like I have now. That's because of God's grace. But don't send some double message. Irreconcilable, truce breakers. So on the one hand, we we need to hold out forgiveness. The other hand, we need to hold up God's standard. I don't care if it's in marriage or business. People today, it's hard to do make a deal with someone on a handshake or just your word because you don't know where they're going to go. The next word is malicious gossips. So these five words are linked together with family life, with the alpha prefix. Now he goes into seven words that are far wider than the family, and the first is malicious gossips. The Greek word is diabolos. We get our English word diabolical or or devil from it. The King James renders it false accusers. Some translations say slanderers. And that's what the devil, that's what the word devil means, slanderer. The devil at heart is a slanderer. He takes a good name and a good reputation, and he slanders it. And people who do not keep their word, who are truce breakers, will often defend their position by slandering the person whom they broke the agreement with. Then he adds, without self-control, and that certainly characterizes a large portion of our culture. If it feels good, do it, whether it's getting high on drugs or alcohol or illegitimate sex. Again, Paul wants us to understand that this is behavior that typifies the last days and it will intensify as we move through the age. In addition, this lack of self-control manifests itself by those who are described here as brutal. Do you see it? Brutal. Uh, The Net Bible says, savage, anemiros means fierce. It's used of savage beasts in Koine Greek outside of the Bible we're seeing a trend where there's just growing violence in our culture. The murder rate in the last 18 months nationally is up 30 percent. That should concern you. There are now 140 known terrorist groups that are operating in the world. That's just grown exponentially. And while we're on the subject of brutality and savage behavior, remember what Hitler did with the Jews. He termed them as non-people. He said they're like rats. And some of you who've been with me to Yad Vashem, and we've seen all the publicity that he did amongst those nations that he conquered. He said they're like rats and they need to be exterminated. And that's really what we've done with children in the womb. They're not little babies whose life began at the moment of conception. They're fetuses and they can be exterminated. Yes, right up until one minute before they are born. So our president says, I'm personally against abortion, but what a person does with their own body is their own business. And the Pope seemingly agreed and went against his own cardinals and bishops here in the American church who refused to give our president communion, but the Pope said you should give him communion. Well, if Hitler are a Catholic, would you give him communion? I mean, do you not have a line somewhere in your perverted way of thinking? It's like someone saying, well, I am personally against exterminating Jews, but whatever someone does in their own private gas chamber is their own personal business. And sadly, this brutality is being justified throughout our mainline denominations. And if today is a typical day, by a pill or by a vacuum cleaner... Or by a set of four sips, 4,500 babies will be exterminated. In addition, the society of the last days will be haters of good. The King James wanting to personalize, it says, despisers of those that are good. So instead of honoring what is good, we despise what is good. And more and more in society today, the standards of right and wrong are being denied and compromised and just utterly destroyed. So the heroes are no longer the men of God and the evangelists and the missionaries and the godly dads and the mother who chooses to stay home and raise her children. Those aren't the heroes of the youth at large. No, the immoral Hollywood stars and the athletes, I'm not against sports, God knows that, but sports has become like a God in our day. Isaiah warns, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. In addition, he says, those days will be treacherous. One, the complete Jewish Bible says traitorous. It's the same word that's used in Luke chapter 6, descriptive of Judas, who was a traitor. Describes people who... Betray others because they can't be trusted. They lie. They break their promises. They betray others. They break friendships. Then he describes them further as reckless. They're rash. They They don't really have any careful way of thinking about the decisions they make. It's just reckless. Then he adds conceited. One paraphrase says, puffed up with pride. The King James says they're high-minded. They're, they're just swollen with conceit because they're so into themselves. He will be a lover of money and a, and a lover of self, as stated earlier, and such people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. understand the Bible's not against true pleasure. It's just against worldly pleasure. The psalmist said, You will make me you will make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. The problem is, is that when we substitute the kind of pleasure that God created you for, for what the world is offering, there are Christians who are not in church today, in different parts of the world because they didn't feel like getting up. It was rainy, it was wet, it was cold. Some places where the sun's shining they're out in the golf course. Some are still lounging around the kitchen drinking their coffee. Not that they couldn't be here. I understand some can't be here. But because they won't be here. Lovers of pleasure, the restaurants are full, the stadiums are packed, but the churches are empty. 50,000 churches are expected to close. the reason is, is because men in the last days will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now listen, it's no longer the Lord's Day, is it? It's just the weekend. And God says, as you see, because there is an assumption that you can see, that you can understand God's prophetic schedule unfolding, that when you see all these things happen, you need all the more to gather together. All the more as you see the day drawing near. But when we reverse the order of the first and the third by putting ourselves first and God last, then our human relationship will suffer. And it's only the gospel that can take someone from being self-centered to being God-centered and other-centered. Now, quickly, the religious observance in the last days, the religious observance in the last days. Please notice, if you will, verse 5. These people will be holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Now, most Americans don't need religion, however they express that self. Climate change, that's a religion in itself. But what they need is true religion, saving religion. And we have a lot of religion that is just empty and meaningless. Isaiah dealt with the problem in his day, and he wrote these words, God speaking, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. I'm wary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Read the book of Amos. It's the same problem. It's the theme of the book. And Jesus underscored the same problem in his day with the Pharisees when he said, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and indulgence.'" They carefully, meticulously jump through all these little religious acts, but on the inside, Jesus said, they were like dead men's bones. That's what he's describing here. They have a form of godliness outwardly, but inwardly, they are absolutely bankrupt. Religion... Without reality, form without force, as James said, as we studied a few months back, faith without works is dead. To quote Paul and Titus, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. Do you have true salvation this morning? It comes with power. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old life has passed away and everything has become new. And understand, Paul then adds a warning. Notice, avoid such men as these. Now, that does not mean that Timothy was to remove himself with all contact from the lost people. Jesus was a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. In fact, if you were to try to do that, Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 5, you'd have to leave the planet. So what is he describing here? Again, he's dealing with people who have a form of godliness. They are professing Christians. They are fake Christians. Avoid such men as these. They don't have the real thing. And that's why Jesus, on the one hand, said, hey, look, if a man is a tax gatherer, a sinner, you should be a friend of his so you can win him to the Savior. But if he's a confessing believer... And he's living an immoral or a less than pleasing lifestyle that is bringing harm to the testimony of the local church, then you should treat him as a tax gatherer. You should separate from him. Avoid such men as these. And sadly, there are many wonderful pastors across our nation. And some of God's people, out of tradition, are in bad churches. They say, Well, I'm here to have an influence. You know, there's a lot of lost people in this church, and I'm here to have an influence. You're having an influence, all right. They look at you and say, well, he's a good man. He goes to such and such church. Maybe I need to go to that church. Yeah, you're having an influence. You're bringing them under a dead, fake, lost preacher. Oh, but we've been going here for generations. You know, my great grandfather's buried out back. My grandfather's buried out back. Mom and dad are buried out fa- back. I can't leave. Look, if grandma and grandpa could get up and leave, they would. They can't. You should. You should get out of a liberal church. You ought to be in a Christ-centered, Bible-believing church where the pastor makes no compromise. Finally, in addition to their moral conduct, look at their proselytizing zeal. Their proset- proselytizing zeal in the last days. We read here in verse 6, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins led on by various impulses. The devil loves company, and so he has his men who try to captivate weak women, he says. Paul gave the same descriptive terms, he broadened it to men and women alike in Romans 1, of people who give hearty approval to those who practice sin. You get drunk for the first time, you feel kind of bad, Second time you get drunk, you don't feel quite as bad. Third time, you want someone to get drunk with you. You lose your virginity, you want other people to lose their virginity with you. You become an evangelist for sin. And he's describing here, I say proselytizing zeal, it's really, it's a a military term that is used, that they capture these weak women, they go into their households. Why into their households? Because that's where the church met. They, they, they didn't have, you know, local assemblies that met in buildings like this. They met in homes. So, assumingly, when the man is out working by the sweat of his brow to do what he's supposed to do and earn a living for his family, and mom's at home, in comes these false teachers trying to captivate them, trying to carry them away. And the Scripture says they're weighed down with sin. They're, they're, they're looking for answers, but in all the wrong places. They're just guilty people. And they embrace a Joseph Smith or a Kenneth Copeland or a Joel Olstein or a Joyce Myers. I mean, someone said to me, you don't love Joyce Myers? And I said, absolutely not. She's a heretic. But our people today in America are so blurred, and they can't think clearly because the Bible is not being taught in their pulpits. Now, understand, he's not picking on women here. He says the source of their problems are men who are entering in and carrying them away. Both are involved, but they're duped. They think everything's okay, always learning, verse 7, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They'll listen to anybody, kind of like the Athenians in Acts 17. As their pastime, they would just listen to different speakers. It's your truth, my truth, whatever you want to be true. And so to illustrate these evil men who come in to capture these women, he looks at the illustration of Janus and Jambres who opposed Moses. Now, if you try to find in the Old Testament the names Janus and Jambres, you won't. Not found in the Old Testament. It is a tradition through the centuries that these two men, we, we, we know what they were a part of. They were a part of the men who opposed Moses who were magicians. You remember, they had the encounter with Pharaoh and Moses put down his staff, it turned into a snake, and they replicated it. Satan has power, but then God's power was superior and Moses' staff ate all their snakes. And so there was a tradition all the way back into the early Midrash commentaries on the Tanakh. And they said, well, Janus and Jambres were two men that opposed uh, Moses there in front of Pharaoh. Well, some traditions, that's all they are, traditions, and some traditions are false. But occasionally, God puts His stamp of approval on a tradition, and He does in this particular case. They're imitators, and that's what false religion is. It's a counterfeit. It's an imitation. That's why John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they be of God. And so, we live in the last days where people attack the Bible. They say, a lady wrote me this morning from Australia. I haven't even responded yet for the Bible line. Rick already probably saw the question. She said, well, you know, here in Australia, these preachers were saying the Bible's true. It's just not completely true. It's inspired, but not completely inspired. See, that's what they do. Well, if it's not all true, what parts are true? Just what you want to pick and choose? So every false religion has either an attack against the Bible, you can't trust it, or some interpretation that no one else has seen in 2,000 years, and look, if it's new, it's not true, or they have some dream, some prophecy, some additional book, I am sick and tired of hearing Christians about the dreams they've had. Let me tell you about your dream, my dream, pastor. Like it has some authority? It has no authority. God's canon is closed. closed. These are men of depraved mind. Men of depraved mind further rejected in regard to the truth. We discussed this word depraved or reprobate or useless depending on your English translation. Without the alpha prefix, it was used of a metal that was tested and found worthy. With the alpha pretext, it means just the opposite. A depraved mind is really an upside-down mind. And that's where we are today. You say, who is the evil one today? Men like Pastor Carl Brogy. He's homophobic, they tell me. He hates gays and lesbians. And tr- no, I don't. I don't hate them any more than the adulterer, the drunkard, or anyone else. I am a sinner saved by the grace of God. But if I didn't tell you the truth, I would be a false prophet. But you see, a depraved mind, these are, this is a society filled with depraved minds. They're embracing the exact opposite of what God says. And so at the end, they are rejected. They are tested, and they are found to be counterfeit. But Paul wants to underscore here that just like Janice and Jambres ultimately were defeated, so were these people be, verse 9, but they will not make further progress for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janice and John Bray's folly was also. Let me leave us with some applications as we close this morning. Number one, God's truth is protected by practical biblical separation. God's truth is protected by practical biblical separation. Now, we live in a day of ecumenicism, and there are many movements in Christendom that are screaming for unity. Unity. And on the one hand, we should do everything in our power to be unified with other Bible-believing Christians. That's what Jesus prayed for in his high priestly prayer, that, they, that the world may believe that you sent me how by our oneness. But understand the oneness that the Lord Jesus is speaking about is oneness amongst those who are born again. Now, we must never, ever, ever forget that just as the gospel seed is being sown, tears by the evil one are equally sown. And they will even come into the local assembly, into Bible-believing assemblies. There's a day coming when Jesus will separate the wheat from the weeds. But what are we to do with those who have turned from the truth? Listen to these verses. 2 Thessalonians 3.14, And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him. Oh, that sounds so hateful. Do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. I had a man tell me that I wasn't saved. Why am I not saved? Because you weren't saved in the King James Bible. And the King James Bible is the only pure seed. So you're not saved. We're not talking about this ridiculous forms of separation that some people have invented. We're talking about people who have departed from critical historical doctrines of the Christian faith. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 16, 17. I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from him. Or here in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people the this world, the lost or with the covetous, or swindlers, or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. You'd have to leave the planet. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he should be an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or reviler, or a drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Listen, we are living in the last of the last days. You have to have your head in the sand and not have read the Scriptures not to understand it. There is to be a coming out, a separation from those who defy basic truth, and now it's walked in the front door of the evangelical church. The evangelical church, now these different leaders, I don't even want to spend my time on it this morning, embracing evil. But there should be a coming in. The Bible says we are to think how we can encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, we are living in challenging days. And listen, as a parent, you should be here on Sunday morning if you're able, and you should be here with your children. And you shouldn't put them in Sunday school both hours. They should be in the worship service if they're at least five years of age. Now, I know people come. I talk to our visitors every week. Oh, you don't have a children's church? I just came from a church, and they had children's church all the way through the sixth grade. We really like that. You don't have that? No, I don't. Why not? Because it's unbiblical. There's an assumption in Ephesians when Paul says, children, obey your parents, for this is right in the Lord, that there is children present if they are old enough to understand that phrase, or old enough to be in church. So we invite them to come in at the age of five. If you want to bring them in before, good. If someone cries like they did, I think it was a live service, the lady got up and left, okay, got it. Appreciate that. But you should bring them in. Some of us, oh, you know, we just want to stay at home on Sunday night and watch our show and, you know, and... It's only 26 weeks, Awana, out of 52 Sundays. It's a great program. They're working hard. All the more as you see the day drawing near, finally. Secondly, God's truth in the end will be vindicated. It will be vindicated. I know sometimes we can get distressed in our day by the false teachers who oppose and trouble the church, but we must never, ever, ever forget, even if a few weak people may be taken in, even if falsehood seems fashionable more and more, in the end, God's truth will be vindicated. That's what Paul says. In the end, he says, their folly will be obvious to all, 21 centuries have come and gone. And so many of these movements have come and gone, and the greatest folly of all is yet to come. A man told me in my yard this week when he was working on my well. He said, "I think the seal's been broken," and you know we're we're, we're in the tribulation. I said, "No, it hadn't happened yet." But I said, "What we see happening is probably a precursor to what is going to happen." I'm not here to make a judgment whether what they're doing is right or wrong. All I'm saying is it's an excellent precursor in terms of the control of the nations of the world. And when real trouble comes, and we haven't seen anything yet, you talk about fear, you talk about disaster, wait till the great tribulation comes. But even under that great deception... God's truth will be vindicated. So I would just ask you as we close, God's truth demands a decision, lest we believe error. You may be here today and you're not saved, and you're thinking, well, I've got some days yet to make my decision. The Bible says, boast not yourself about tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. God says today is a day of salvation. God wants you to be saved today. No, not today, God. I'm not going to do that today then you have hardened your heart towards God. And tomorrow it won't be easier. It will be more difficult for you to decide. And you can't come on your timetable. The Spirit of God will not always deal with you. He'll not always strive with men. And Jesus said because of the indecision of the people in his day, because they would not believe, they came to the place where they could not believe. If I didn't know for sure that I had a home in heaven... Based on what this book says, I wouldn't want to leave this building until I got it right. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning for the things that we read, that this is not simply what you have said, but what you are saying. So help us to have ears to hear, eyes to see. Help some dear precious person listening somewhere in the world who's not sure of salvation. They don't understand that Jesus paid it all, 100% of the debt they owe you. And if they will admit that that sin deserves judgment, that it needs to be forgiven and changed, and you can do it through the cross, that if they'll call on Jesus' name, they will instantly and forever be changed. Help someone today to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And help us with courage in the last days to guard the gospel, to preach the gospel, to be good stewards of the gospel that you've entrusted to us. Not to despair, but to be prepared with the people that are around us who need the same forgiveness that someone extended to us. May our hearts be overflowing with compassion and willing to share this good news. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We'll sing our hymn of invitation. If you have a decision you need to make, you may be in Grays, you may be in Graniteville, you may be here, but you know there's a decision you need to make to receive Christ. you're not sure you have, come. You say, I've done that. Well, make it public. Be baptized. That's an act of obedience. You say, well, I've done that. I've been saved and baptized. Well, you need a church home. And if not this church, what church? And if this is a place you can invite your friends to and you can grow, then you ought to come this morning. Matt's going to lead us. If you have a decision, step out and meet me here in the front.